0: Let's pray together. Father, we just ask that you would open our eyes this morning from your word to be amazed at your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Fourth and fifth graders, you were dismissed to your class. Fourth and fifth graders. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. You look good. Look at all. you Memorial Day weekend. That's awesome. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. If you want to open up your Bibles there, Matthew chapter 16 is where we're going to be in a little bit. We're going to cover just a small section in the book of Matthew, but my hope is, is that uh, uh, kind of hearing some of the background of the of the story, it will kind of open our eyes to see, oh, that's what Jesus was talking about. We're in the middle of the fourth week of our series entitled The Rabbi. It's a study in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been kind of doing it based on a lot of Hebrew words and background and those sorts of things. So the very first week, we took a look at Jesus was a rabbi who had smicha authority, which means... He had real authority. Like when people listened to him teach and preach, when they walked away, they said to themselves, we have never heard anything like this or seen anyone teach with such authority. The second week, we took a look at the prayer shawl that Jesus would have worn. The tallet is what they called it. And the expectations that when the Messiah shows up, there would be healing in the tassels of his prayer shawl. And that's why so many times in the Gospels, especially in Matthew, you see this idea of if they could just touch the hem of his cloak or the... The edge of his garment—that was the tassels of his. So we talk about the healing ministry of Jesus. Last week we took a look at what it meant to be a disciple, a talmudim of Jesus as a rabbi, and so we went through those kind of sort of conversations. And one of the things we talked about last week, which would kind of set us up for this this morning, is is one of the aspects of being a talmudim of a rabbi was that you often traveled together. It wasn't like you sat in a classroom with desks and listened to your teacher. You would just start to travel together, and in the traveling, you would begin to think and learn and act just like the rabbi. It was purposeful, and it was for a very specific reason, even if as a disciple you didn't really know where you were going. It's like Jesus saying, all right, let's go. We're going for a walk. That's what it'd be like, and you didn't know where you're headed and where you might end up uh, in the end. And along the way, you observed as much as you could of your rabbi time of teaching, of, of watching how he reacted or responded to real-life opportunities to learn how to act and speak just like him, to have his mind. And it's on one of these traveling occasions that's the backdrop of what I want to share with you this morning, and that is the rabbi's masima, or his mission. And the setting is one day, Jesus gathers his disciples and says, we're going to go to Caesarea Philippi is where they're off to. Now, Caesarea Philippi is an ancient city. I want you to just, this will make more sense in terms of background if you get this. It's about 25 miles away from where they would have normally gathered in terms of the communities of Galilee. So they had to hike about 25 miles to get to Caesarea Philippi, and it could not have been any more different than what the apostles were used to by way of their own hometowns in the area of Galilee. Now, the city is located at the foot of Mount Hermon, and it's actually built on rock. And so after Alexander the Great comes and conquers the area for the Greeks, the Greeks rename the city Panias after the Greek god Pan. Now, I'll explain all this in just a moment. So just Pan is the deity that those who live in Caesarea Philippi worship. It becomes the city, Caesarea Philippi, becomes the religious center for worship of the Greek god Pan. And you can see there's a hundred foot uh, cliff, just a solid rock, and in it you can see the little cubby holes where they would put statues of Pan, uh, and, and underneath will be shrines. Going to the next picture here, see what the Here's what an artist uh, thinks it probably looks like, the 100-foot cliff rocks, and underneath it, you could see the temples and the shrines that were dedicated to the Greek god Pan. Now, years later, when the Romans conquered the territory, Herod Philip rebuilt the city and named it after himself. Thus, that's how you get Caesarea Philippi. But the city remained dedicated to the Greek god Pan, and so those are the shrines and temples. So that's the backdrop of Caesarea Philippi, a 100-foot rock cliff, and this is where Jesus brings his disciples for a graduation speech of sorts and a huge turning point, not only in Matthew's gospel story, but also in the training of the apostles. In order to understand it, you've got to understand the background. And so Pan, the Greek god Pan, he was the god of fertility, which is important we'll need to come back to, and you can imagine all the things that would come with that. He was also the god of shepherds and the god of flocks. And he was also the god of fear. It was believed that he had the power to bring on, on us you know, sudden anxiety and fear. In fact, the word panic that we say, panic, comes from the Greek god Pan. Now, to the pagans of Jesus' day who lived or visited Caesarea Philippi, it was believed that the cave that was in the cliff of these rocks was in fact the gateway to the underworld where the fertility gods lived during the winter so you're looking at this hundred foot rock cliff and there's a cave at the bottom of it and it was believed by the pagans in jesus's day that that was the gateway to the underworld and the gods of fertility lived in that underworld during the winter and so they would engage then in all sorts of ritualistic and detestable acts of worship you know, out in the open in front of everybody that was dedicated to the fertility gods. Now, you can imagine, what, we, what do you do to attract fertility gods? And so what you'd have out in the open were orgies were very commonplace. There were the norm, prostitution, even sex with goats, which I'm not trying to be crass, but you need to know this was the practice because the Greek god Pan, his lower half was that of a goat is what was believed. And now, what you need to know is Caesarea Philippi stood at the base of the cliff where spring water flowed. And at one time, the water ran directly from the mouth of the cave set in the bottom of the cliff. That pagans of Jesus' day commonly believed that their fertility gods lived in the underworld during the winter, and they returned to the earth each spring. And they saw water as a symbol of the underworld and thought that their gods traveled to and from the world through the caves. Now, to the pagan mind, the cave and spring water of Caesarea Philippi created then a gate to the underworld. They believed that their city was literally at the gates of the underworld or the gates of hell or Hades. So to entice the return of their god Pan each year, they would engage in all those ritualistic immoralities. So when Jesus chooses to bring his disciples here, I'm telling you, it was a shock for them because Caesarea Philippi was sort of like the red light district in their world, and devout Jews would have avoided any contact with Caesarea Philippi. This is not the sort of place that a super religious guy would take his disciples to, and it once again reinforces that this Rabbi Yeshua is not like anything else we've ever seen, and no one really knows quite what to do with this rabbi. Yet here they are in Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus uses this moment for a teaching opportunity, for sort of a graduation speech, kind of a demarcation in their life together. And in it, here's what we see. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Jesus brings them to this incredibly pagan, and probably for them, A little morally awkward. I mean, you can hear Bartholomew probably saying to Thaddeus, dude, quit staring at her. Eyes down. Bounce your eyes, dude. Bounce your eyes. And he cuts here to the core of everything by asking an identity question. Who do the people say the Son of Man is? Who do people think that I am? What are they saying? Now, Jesus knows who he is, but he wants to learn from his disciples what they've been hearing. What's the local chatter? What's the gossip? Do people know who I am? the truth is, no one really knows what to do with Jesus. They had clearly never seen or heard anything like him. They knew he taught with such authority that he simply had no equal. He was unlike any of the other teachers and rabbis. And the miracles, I mean, this guy was able to open up blind eyes. And he could bring hearing back to the deaf, and he could release the tongue of the mute. We've never seen anything like that. We don't quite know what to do. And so this is what it says in verse 14. They replied, well, some people say, you're John the Baptist. And others say... Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, maybe one of the other prophets. And so this is kind of the gossip going around. What do you do? Who is this? We've never seen anything like, who is this guy? I don't know. Maybe he's John the Baptist back from the dead. Really? You think so? I don't know. Maybe. Or maybe it's Elijah. You know, the prophet Malachi says that before the Messiah shows up, Elijah will return. And when we read the stories of Elijah, he's doing a lot of the same kind of miraculous stuff. Maybe this is Elijah. You think so? I don't know. It's possible. I don't know about Jeremiah. I mean, he's got a very powerful prophetic, I mean, it could be one of the prophets. Who really knows? So what you see is there isn't any unanimity or agreement in terms of who Jesus is. But now comes the critical turning point for the disciples. Jesus looks at them, listen, you've been with me now for some time. You've been my Talmudim. You've been my disciples. You've witnessed everything. What about you? Who do you say that I am? That's what he says in verse 15. But what about you? who do you say I am? What, what do you believe about me? Do you know my identity? And in typical fashion, Peter, who I believe to be fairly impulsive and extroverted, he comes out with it first. He says in verse 16, you are the Christ, or some of your translations will say the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, if your translation says Christ, you need to know Christ is the Greek word, Christos, for the anointed one. Anointed one in Hebrew is Messiah, meaning Messiah. So Christ and Messiah are the same, and it's a title. It isn't Jesus' last name. It isn't like Jesus Christ. Hi, Mr. Christ, nice to meet you. That's not Christ is a title, meaning this is the anointed one. This is the Messiah. And Peter knows who Jesus is. He is the son of the living God. And then what Jesus says next only makes sense when you get the background of Caesarea Philippi and understand the context. And Jesus says this in Matthew 16, verse 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, Petra. Now remember, there's a 100-foot rock cliff sitting right behind them, And Jesus says, You are Peter. You are the rock that I will build my church on. And the gates of Hades... I mean, they believe right there in the gate was the, the, the literal gateway to Hades. to the other. And the gate of Hades will not overcome it. I'm going to give you keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So you have to picture all that background in your mind with the 100-foot rock, with his temples and shrines dedicated to the Greek god Pan. Jesus looks right at Peter and says, no, no, no. You are Peter, rock, and on you I will build my church. And I'm sure it was probably daunting to see such a hundred-foot rock cliff. It probably looked imposing, but Jesus says, oh, that's nothing. You are a rock, and my church will be built on you, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus will give them real authority, the keys to the kingdom of God, and the power to bind and loose. And not only will it be bound and loosed here on earth, it's going to be bound and loosed in heaven. And he finishes it with a, but let's keep the fact that I'm a Messiah on the down low for just a little bit longer here. But here's what we note from this story. That Jesus storms the gates of hell. Like, he doesn't call his disciples. If you're following Jesus, if you're a Talmudim of Jesus of Nazareth, he doesn't call you to be a holy huddle hiding from evil. Rather, he will take you right to the front lines to the gate of hell itself. And and this is important to note because I think God's people have always had this tendency to want to move to be kind of a holy huddle, to kind of isolate ourselves from the rest of the world and for there's some evil out there and there's some bad things out there. Maybe we should just kind of gather together on our own and be kind of our own isolated community away from all those evils and things that could influence in a way that's negative. And I want you to know for Jesus, he doesn't do that. He takes his Talmudim and he takes a trip to Caesarea Philippi itself to storm the gates of hell. And it's been this way all along. I mean, even in Jesus' day, you had Jewish communities who tried to isolate themselves away from the world. In fact, have you ever heard of the Essenes? Anyone ever heard of the Jewish sect, the Essenes? They went out to the desert trying to avoid anything that had to do with the world. They were doing to their own communities. Was a, I mean, in fact, I think John the Baptist probably spent some time with the Essenes. They also are the ones who gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls that came from the Essenes. And so this has been a tendency, and it still is today. And you probably know churches that they've kind of formed those holy, holy huddles and separate themselves, and then they reinforce it with a bunch of legalistic do's and don'ts. And, and, and we all have the tendency, I think, to kind of get trapped in those legalistic do's and don'ts. But it's the way of, hey, we've got to shield ourselves from everyone else in the world. It's sort of a us versus them mentality. We sent our kids to a fundamentalist Baptist school for elementary school. It's full of rules. We got kicked out. But, I mean, that's another story for another day. <laughs> another story, another day. Um, but did you, one of the rules for their teachers were they couldn't go see movies. Like they had a sign in their contract they would not go see a movie. Because you could walk out, and they thought you were—they didn't know what you're. This appearance of evil—you had to avoid all of that. And they went home and rented Hangover too. But I mean, you couldn't go to a a a movie. movie. Movie—that's kind of. I I mean, I know that's the extreme, but you probably heard kind of those similar rules. Where in the end, churches in the end, they could look alike, talk alike, think alike, dress alike, vote alike. And Jesus even even in this moment, in Matthew 16. He storms the gates of hell with his disciples. I, and I think he's saying, I don't want you to cowering in some holy huddle scared of evil. You have real power and real authority. And John, who is one of Jesus' best friends, he's here for this speech. He will remind his readers later in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, that you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world because Jesus our rabbi knows you can't change the world from an isolationist posture you you can't make an impact on the world if you are in a holy huddle and isolated and I know this is a struggle, and especially for someone who's new into Christ. Here's the dynamic I see. And, and if you're kind of brand new to this Christian thing, let me, let me just give you a couple of warnings because I think they're important. Like right now when you first begin your relationship with Jesus, you look around and it feels like you know a lot of people, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers that you're still friends with who they don't know Jesus. But my warning is if you do nothing but hang out with church people for a very long time doing churchy things all week long, and two years from now you're going to look around and go, well, who are your friends? I they're only church people I don't, I don't hang out with them anymore. I don't know anymore. And I'm telling you, don't do that. I don't think that's what Jesus would do. Jesus would not cut off all of his friends or his neighbors or his coworkers. I mean, it, you cannot change the world from an isolationist posture. But what we know is if your whole week is taken up by a bunch of churchy-like activities, you'll no longer have space for coworkers and neighbors and those who need Jesus. Jesus himself tries to refute this mentality when he'll say in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 5, he'll say to his disciples, no, no, listen, you're salt of the earth and you're light of the world. He'll say in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything. It's to be thrown out and to be stomped on or trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. And neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I would say remain engaged with people who need Jesus. Don't cut them off. Don't isolate yourself from them. This is not the way of Jesus. Jesus hangs out with, according to Matthew, and this is Matthew's own personal story, with sinners and the sick. And those would be considered the outsiders. That those who have been marginalized and probably looked down upon by the super religious. And let me give another warning to new Christians. You, you'll need to fight the temptation to become spiritually prideful and arrogant. It doesn't happen to everybody, but every once in a while I'll see somebody gives their life to Jesus, and all of a sudden, things radically change in their life for the good. I mean, they're making life changes, and they're repenting, and all that is fantastic. And what can happen is they can look back at their old life and so loathe it that you kind of lump everybody back in that old life and that same spirit. And I'm telling you, it comes across, even if you don't mean to, it comes across as very self-righteous and very judgmental. And you're going to have to fight the temptation to not be spiritually prideful or arrogant in your new place with Jesus. Because sometimes then you, you, you get a little preachy. And sometimes that's, I mean, remember, who does Jesus rebuke more than anyone else? It's not sinners. It's the self-righteous. It's the spiritually arrogant. And what's always amazed me about Jesus was his complete comfort in being with sinners. I mean, that's what, I mean, in fact, on the flip side, it's always amazing to me how comfortable sinners are with Jesus. You ever notice that? they all love him. He can hang out with them. He has dinner with them. He treats them with such compassion and love that they all love to be with him. Jesus, our rabbi. Yet today, it seems that for Christians, we feel so uncomfortable with sinners, and sinners for sure don't feel comfortable with Christians. I mean, I get it all the time. Like, I'm just out talking to somebody. They don't know I'm a pastor and cussing up a storm, and all of a sudden, well, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Yeah, I was praying just the other night. I mean, I... Okay, just be, you be you, okay? we'll be all, I'm going to be all right, I promise. We don't want to have the little comments or slight hints of indignation or sometimes the out-and-out out hateful speech. I've got a friend on Facebook who she's a, just an atheist, just out with it, just I am a complete atheist. And from time to time... She'll tell me stories of smug Christians, like she'll just send me a story of this ha- just happened to me a, in a conversation that she just had or how somebody treated her when they found out she was an atheist. And when she tells me the stories, I, I, honestly, I just go, yeah, I'd probably remain an atheist too. If this is what Christianity looks like, then, but listen to me, you don't get that from Jesus. That, that's not Jesus. In fact, the only people who didn't like to be around Jesus seems to be those who are self-righteous. And I'll let you work out before the Lord what, all you, what this would look like in your own circumstances and your life situations. I mean, and you might be thinking, well, are you saying I should go into a strip club? I mean, probably not, unless it's dollar night on domestic drafts, but <laughs> I'm just, I kid, I kid, I'm a, I'm a kidder. Are you saying I should go to the bar? I don't know, maybe. You know you. If you can't be in a bar because of what happens in your own spirit, then don't go into a bar, but someone else might be able to. And what I would say is Jesus loves the people who are in that bar. He loves them a lot. Are you saying I I could go clubbing? Not if you dance like Elaine from Seinfeld, but (laughs) there are people in that club that Jesus deeply loves. I was listening to a podcast a couple weeks ago, and two women were describing a ministry, I think it was in New York City, that this church had in the clubs, you know, like on the weekends. People go to the clubs, and they just get hammered and drunk, and and they're going to have a ministry there, and so what they did, they would go in, and they would take care of those who were like in the bathroom, just puking and sick and drunk and having fresh towels and and cleaning up. And they would bring water bottles with them because they were dehydrated from all the alcohol. And then they would make sure that they would get a taxi uh, safely home at at the end. And they would just do this just every weekend. They'd go in, they just serve just like this in the name of Jesus. And they were reflecting on, in the middle of it, it just seems like even if you had a spiritual conversation, they're not going to remember it in the morning. It was just like, I love Jesus. I'm giving my life to, I mean, wake up. They don't I don't know what happened, right? So, and so it looked almost like a complete and total failure, like, why are we really doing this? This isn't really effective. Nobody's really giving their life. But over time, what had happened is there are other people in that club like bartenders and servers and waitresses and bouncers who would watch this group of Christians come in and, without asking for anything, just serve people who, quite honestly, were not the most lovable in the moment just with kindness and grace. And all of a sudden, conversations and and, uh, people begin to have questions about Jesus in a whole new way as you just demonstrate the love of Jesus in the context that he sends you to. And so in the end, you, you know you. And I'm not interested in laying down any legalistic anything on anyone. I just want you to know, Jesus takes his disciples to storm the gates of hell, and we should note that. And take it as a lesson that Jesus probably is not calling us into holy huddles that Jesus is going to build the church, he says, I mean, think about the backdrop. He says, I'm going to build the church on the very places that were most filled with moral corruption. So we should note that. There's a story, it's in New Jersey, there's a guy named Pat Sharkey of the Victory Christian Fellowship. He bought a porn shop, their church did, so they can turn it into a church. There you have it, storming the gates of hell, and we're going to build the church on it. But in it, we should understand that Jesus always sends His disciples out. It's a directional thing. And it's important to note, they are missional, they're sent out. Which seems to be the exact opposite of what we typically do today where, well, if we build it, they'll come. And I'm not opposed to buildings, but that's not the the way of Jesus. He sends out. With authority. Matthew chapter ten, verse one. Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every sickness and disease. Matthew twenty eight, verses eighteen to twenty. Then Jesus said to said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Hey, what we need, authority is delegated power. It isn't our power. We don't have power. Jesus has power. He simply delegates that power to us in the form of authority. By way of analogy, it, picture me in the middle of the street here on Domware, and I'm going to try to stop an oncoming car, right? Now, just, I mean, I'm really strong, but even I can't stop an oncoming. I do not have enough power to stop an oncoming car, right? It's just, I don't have enough power. But if you give me a uniform and a badge and maybe a cool gun on my side, what do I have? I've got authority, which is what? Delegated power because the badge and the uniform represents the power of the governments that be, and they have power. That's sort of what it's like for you as disciples of Jesus. It's not your power. You don't have any power. Jesus has power, but he's delegating it to you. He's extending it. And why? Because you have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of you. You have real authority. Because you bear the name of Yeshua himself, our rabbi, thus giving you real authority. And this is what Jesus wants his Talmudim, his disciples to know. I'm sending you out with real, real authority to do these things. You do not have to be afraid. You don't have to hide yourselves kind of isolated from the world in holy huddles. I'm giving you, listen, I've got all authority in heaven and on earth. Nobody has more than me. And I'm promising to be with you even to the end of the age, which I don't know if it's a threat or supposed to be good news. But Jesus says, I am with you always. And if Jesus is with us, that's the delegated authority that we need to carry out what He's called us to. We have literal spiritual authority over the gates of hell. We have the power to bind and loose, and that's why we engage in spiritual warfare. And I don't mean stupidly, and I don't think any of us ought to be demon chasers. Jesus isn't calling us to that. It's simply we're, we don't have to run from evil or isolate ourselves from it. And even his own disciples need to be taught these concepts of, no, listen, you have real spiritual authority when you encounter evil. And so this is a story that Matthew will tell It's in Matthew chapter 17, verse 14. It says, when they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. And Jesus is kind of irritated here, right? This is Jesus got kind of a little ticked off. He says this, you unbelieving and perverse generation, right? That's kind of Jesus frustrated. How long shall I stay with you? I mean, he's like, I've been with you guys now for how long, and you still don't get it? You don't understand what it is that I'm about and what I'm calling you to? How, how, bring the boy here to me. So Jesus rebukes the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Now, later, the disciples come to Jesus in private, and they ask, why couldn't we drive this out? And he replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus' lesson, no, I mean, I'm intending this to be for you live your life with such faith in me as your rabbi that you'll do the things that I have been doing. And so what I would note from Matthew 16 is we should go on the offensive. Like, we shouldn't play defense all the time. We should stick it to evil. Like, we we should just storm the gates of hell ourselves. And we want to be clear. Paul does give us warnings in it. When I say we want to storm the gates of hell and stick it to evil, I'm not talking about people. This is Paul will tell us in Ephesians 6, verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not people, but rather, listen, it's the spiritual rulers and authorities and the powers of this dark world against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what we're going after. He'll say in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That if we're going to follow after the rabbi Yeshua, Jesus, it means we'll follow him with faith that we have real spiritual authority to storm the gates of hell. And we will take up the weapons that he's given to us, which are prayer. I mean, this is our primary weapon. When we see evil, what we do is we pray. We pray for an advancement of the kingdom of God. When, when we see that some other kingdom is at work that's not God's kingdom, what we do is we pray. And we bind and we loose and we work for the kingdom of God and its advancement because we know who Jesus is. This goes back to Jesus' question in Matthew 16. Who, who do you say that I am? You're Jesus, Yeshua, our rabbi, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And like the disciples in Matthew 16, we're free now to share that with everybody because our rabbi, Yeshua, is, in fact, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Pan, he's not the God of fertility. Yeshua is the author of life. Pan, he's not the God of shepherds. We're following after the good shepherd. Pan, he's not the God of fear. Yeshua, he's the one that conquered fear and death. And he's not calling us to holy huddles, but rather sending us out to tell the world that our rabbi lives, and he died for them, and he lives again. So in that, we want to storm the gates of hell and reclaim what rightfully belongs to our God, to tell the world this is the son of the living God. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful that you have extended to us real authority. And so we don't want to cower somewhere. We want to be strong and bold. We know that you've not given us a spirit of timidity or fear, but rather one of real love and power and self-control. And so would you guide us by your spirit as we walk out of here to be your disciples full of faith that we trust in the name of Yeshua in such a degree that we know that we can storm the gates of hell. And we're grateful that your promise is that we will not ever be overcome by it. And so use us as your faithful disciples, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.